0: Hello, and welcome to Reproductive Conversations, the podcast hosted by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, BPAS. This is our very first episode, and we're delighted to have you with us as we embark on a series of discussions centred around reproductive choice. From the contraception needed to avoid conception, right the way through to how to feed a newborn baby, and of course, the continued fight for abortion rights, which has never felt more important. I'm your host, Claire Murphy, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine O'Brien.
1: Hi, Claire. It's great to be here, and I'm so excited about the discussions we're going to have. Indeed. And we're all
0: still very much trying to process the ramifications of the US Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, women's constitutional right to abortion, which has just been scrapped in the United States, While much of the discussion is understandably focused on the horrendous impact this decision could have on women's ability to access abortion care, there are also concerns it may have serious implications for maternal health care more widely, including the ability to access medications during pregnancy. Clinicians in the US have raised the alarm that women of reproductive age who are suffering severe and life-threatening conditions may be unable to access effective treatments because of an association between certain medications and poorer pregnancy outcomes. However, even before the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and even in the UK where abortion is not threatened in the same way, a fetus-first approach to women's healthcare increasingly prevails.
1: Yes, and as we know, many women need to take some medication when they're pregnant, but the majority of drugs actually have no safety information for pregnant women. And we saw some of the consequences of this with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine, when women were initially advised not to take it because there had been no research on its safety in pregnancy. However, there are many other examples where women can struggle to access medicines that they need for their own health in pregnancy because of concerns for the foetus.
0: So are pregnant women, and indeed all women of reproductive age, being harmed by this foetus-first approach in medicine and health advice? And how can we ensure that the health needs of women are not seen as less important or in competition with those of their babies? In this episode, we'll be exploring these issues with our guests, Dr. Caitlin Dean of Pregnancy Sickness Support and Rachel Arkell, researcher at the Centre for Reproductive Research and Communication.
1: So, first up on today's episode, we're delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Caitlin Dean. Caitlin is the chairperson of Pregnancy Sickness Support which is a charity which works to improve the care and treatment for women suffering from hyperemesis gravidarum. Caitlin also blogs as the wonderfully named Spewing Mummy. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So Caitlin, to start, can you briefly explain for people who aren't aware of the condition, what exactly is hyperemesis gravidarum? So most people,
2: or pretty much everyone,
1: has heard of um, morning sickness, which is a fairly rubbish
2: term because it's rarely confined to the morning. Um, pregnancy sickness is a, is a more appropriate term in that it is an, it, sickness is synonymous with pregnancy. Everyone knows it, recognises it as an early sign of being pregnant, and everyone expects it to a degree. Um... It's normal, it doesn't tend to affect people's lives, particularly, even though it's not a particularly nice thing to feel sick. But hyperemesis is at the other end of the the spectrum and it is not normal. It's a a severe complication of pregnancy, which is very much abnormal and can be life-threatening. It's where the nausea and vomiting, which is caused by being pregnant, is so severe that you're not keeping any fluid or fluid down, um, therefore becoming dehydrated, malnourished, And it's incredibly distressing and depressing and miserable, and ultimately it can be fatal. Before modern medicine, it used to be commonly fatal in early pregnancy, Um, although now luckily we're we're much better at keeping people alive, although it is still a major cause of death for um, wanted, tried for, very much loved babies. Um, where women um, reach the point where they feel like they have no other option other than to terminate.
1: And so what causes hyperemesis gravidarum and and what treatment options are available for women suffering from this just horrendous condition?
2: So in terms of the cause, uh, we are still not quite there yet um, in terms of, of having absolutely identified that. There's been various theories over the years Um, around the HCG kind of human growth um, hormone, H. pylori, which is the bacteria and all of these kind of things. And none of them have uh, been proven. At the moment, the most likely looking candidate is um, to do with a faulty gene, which means that women with hyperemesis are overproducing a a substance called GDF15. And also they are more sensitive to it in the vomiting centre of their brain. And it's the same thing that causes um, cancer cachexia, which is like an anorexia of cancer, which actually is what around um, 20% of people with cancer actually die from rather than the cancer themselves. It's characterised by um, severe nausea, vomiting, um, loss of appetite, muscle wastage and so on, which is very similar to hyperemesis it's not just the nausea and vomiting it's it's very extreme fatigue you can barely move um it's a heightened sense of smell um excessive salivation and all these other kind of really unpleasant side effects and so it's looking as though that could be potentially the cause for the hyperemesis um but we aren't quite there with research yet and we still need further research to to really prove that as a cause Um, and it's quite optimistic because if if that is the cause if that is the thing causing it in some women um, then there's the potential for a cure because of its links with cancer there's lots of lots of money going into research um, in relation to cancer and to be able to potentially either reduce the amount of GDF-15 in the system um, or to stop the receptors for it reacting to it uh, we can't turn off production of it because that would interfere with the pregnancy but we could potentially look at ways that the, the body could could manage it better but at the moment we're quite a long way off that so in terms of what the current treatments are it's largely palliative in that all we can do is try and maintain manage and mask the condition um, so we have anti-sickness medications that we can use uh sort of first line things is uh, well we have a licensed medication in this country called zonvia although there's a lot of places you can't get that because um for some reason people are still really reluctant to prescribe it um and i think it's it's quite costly but that shouldn't really it's a lot cheaper than a a hospital admission so it's a very pathetic excuse for for not prescribing it so that's licensed for use in pregnancy for nausea and vomiting Um, and then we have uh, medications like cyclazine and metoclopramide and um, ondansetron is a very effective treatment uh, for a lot of people although they all kind of come with side effects like ondansetron causes horrific constipation for example um, and can cause nasty headaches and things so it's all about managing the kind of which is going to control the symptoms the best and make it so that she can eat and drink and hopefully maintain some level of quality of life hopefully be able to you know go to work and look after her family and and all of that stuff that we we have to just get on with but it's nearly impossible when you're that that sick and then obviously if you are dehydrated it's a case of getting rehydrated with iv fluids and and so on so we don't have a cure as such but we do have various ways of tackling it and and treating it
1: you mentioned there that even though there are medications available to to treat the symptoms of of hyperemesis that there's still a reluctance to prescribe some of these medications, and in your research, um, you reference the thalidomide scandal of of the 1950s and 60s, and how that continues to affect the care that pregnant women receive in in 2022. Could you just explain a little bit more about that and the relationship between, you know, these health scandals of the fifties and sixties, and how that's still impacting women today?
2: Yeah. Um, so obviously, I mean, the, the thalidomide scandal was was awful and appalling, and and what was so awful and appalling was that even after they realised that this particular medication was definitely causing these these um, abnormalities. In many countries they continued to prescribe it anyway and whereas in other countries like once they realized they stopped now the, the reason they hadn't realized up until that point is because before that i mean this was this was the very much the birth of modern medicine around that time with with pharmaceuticals pharmaceuticals before that were, were not like we have today and we didn't realize that um things that the mother could take could cross the placenta and, and harm the baby i mean Bear in mind, in those days, you know, cigarettes were advertised to, to pregnant women, <laughs> and, you know, um, and women were actively a different encouraged time. to drink alcohol um, and things like that, you know, a- like actively encouraged to smoke and drink because it didn't, it wasn't a case of, oh, it's going to harm the baby. No one really thought of it like that. And so they didn't really realise that medications the mother could take could have an, an impact on the fetus. And once they did realise and, um, in the, the countries that did ban it um, from use in pregnancy. It was, it was rapidly stopped. Now, a lot of the medications we have today have been around since that time. I mean, cyclozine was developed in, in I think, the, the, the late 50s, early 60s, and has been used ever since. And so we know that you know, it, it, it's not causing problems like this. And there's never been a scandal on the same scale as thalidomide sins or even vaguely not even nearly on the same scale as the thalidomide but the shadow it's cast is very much there and and i think because it was prescribed it was prescribed for all sorts of reasons um it acted like a sedative and, and things like this as well but, but nausea and vomiting of pregnancy was one of the things it was very willingly prescribed for and so the shadow it's cast over this condition is is definitely more it's darker and it's more tenacious than than perhaps on other conditions where medications are much more willingly given um, because it's sort of appreciated in a slightly different way. Um, so it's a source of huge frustration that, that women are still, you know, being handed prescriptions for medications that have been used for 60, nearly 70 years without any evidence of harm whatsoever. And they're being handed it by a GP being told, well, on your head, be it. Haven't you heard about the thalidomide? I wouldn't take the risk and nonsense like that, complete nonsense. And it's really frustrating that it's still causing me this shadow, despite all the learning that's come from it and all the huge, um, progress we've made. Um, we, we still have it hanging around us in a, in a difficult sort of this big ball and chain we're dragging behind us with every step of progress we're trying to make.
1: So the title of this episode today is A Fetus First Approach to Women's healthcare, And we really want to get to a point where we can redress the balance so that pregnant women's health and well-being is not seen as being in competition with the health and well-being of their pregnancy. How big, big question. But how how do you think we can start to make progress on this or continue the progress that's already been made?
2: Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because it is a bizarre position that that has that is currently the situation in 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 the world really. And I know that obviously I've been in, in contact with you guys about this uh, guidance coming out from the EMA, European Medicines Agency, at the moment that they've put out where they talk about the unborn baby before they even talk about the woman requiring a particular medication except that the guidance isn't about unborn babies it's about hypothetical future fetuses (laughs) they don't even exist yet this is this guidance is about medication use in women who have the potential to become pregnant who aren't currently pregnant and they've done it with uh, one of our main medications for hyperemesis on danzatron you know they've become so terrified at the idea that there's possibly in association with an additional three in 10,000 oral clefts that there are now doctors who would rather a woman terminate than prescribe it and then then that's really the opposite of fetus first because you know most of the fetuses i'm pretty sure would rather their mother took the medication and then have a termination (laughs) i think part of the problem once a baby's born you know you've got a newborn baby or whatever you, you as the parents consent on their behalf for their treatment and yet when you're pregnant for some reason we're not given that if the doctors seem to feel like they have to make the decisions for your baby I mean we even had in the research I, I, I did with you guys we had a woman who said that her doctor refused to give her medication for premises because her baby couldn't consent but babies don't consent once they're out of our tummies. <laughs> we consent for them. So we just need to sort of reframe that to being about the woman making those decisions about her and her baby together at what's best for them. It's no good to, to, to tell a woman half the story. It's no good to say, well, if you take on Danzatron, you're increasing the risk of an oral cleft for your baby from a baseline rate of 11 in 10,000 anyway. But what you don't tell her... Is that, But if you don't take ondansetron and you carry on as you are at the moment, whereby you're not eating, uh, you're barely drinking, you're not able to take folic acid or other, you know, your multivitamin or whatever. And therefore, because you're not taking folic acid, your risk of an oral cleft for your baby is much higher than 3 in 10,000. And if you took the ondansetron and you could then take your folic acid, you'd be mitigating that risk. But they don't have that conversation with us. They just throw the scary bits at us. And, and then they imply that if we choose to do something for ourselves, it's the wrong decision for our babies, and that we're being selfish because we just don't want to be a bit sick. But it's not. It's actually like, it's better for the baby too. I don't know why it has to be this kind of, what what's right for the mum is probably wrong for the baby kind of thing. It's a bizarre juxtaposition, but it it's very much the way it still is and Mm. all we can do is keep trying to battle it by talking about it raising awareness about it not keeping quiet which i'm quite good
1: at yes yes i'm I'm getting that vibe um (laughs) absolutely and that's what we want to do in this podcast is raise awareness of these issues that you know a lot of the time are issues that women are just expected to put up and shut up about and we just don't think should be the case Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today and and for giving up your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, Caitlin raises some really concerning issues about our approach to medicines in in pregnancy and, and the kind of information that that women are given in in order for them to to make their own choices about what's what's right for for them and their own health. And I think one of the other issues is that. It seems we're seeing these restrictions not just for, for, for women who are pregnant, but actually women who aren't pregnant and might not even have any intention uh, of becoming pregnant, but you know may find it harder to, to get medications that are seen as potentially harmful to a fetus, lest they fell pregnant. Uh, we're seeing this increasingly with medications like sodium valproate, for example, which is used to treat epilepsy. And it's absolutely right that you know we get the information about the the potential harms of these medications if you know if a woman were to become pregnant. But I think it's really important as well that we're able to give women good information about the risks to their own health if they come off a medication or they or they don't take a take a medication. These are really difficult issues. There's no straightforward answer. I feel really concerned about a situation where women, based on their capacity for pregnancy, face challenges to get medicines that are really important for their own health.
1: Yes. I mean, in the case of hyperemesis, as Caitlin said, this is absolutely a life-threatening condition. And so, for women to be denied this on the basis of the health of their pregnancy, it just, it, I struggle to comprehend how that could be seen to be the appropriate response to a woman who's malnourished and severely dehydrated. The balance is just completely wrong.
0: Next on the episode, we welcome Rachel Arkell, a researcher at the Centre for Reproductive Research and Communication, whose current work includes legal and ethical analysis of policies relating to prenatal alcohol exposure and medication use in pregnancy. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, let's start off with some guidelines. So, NICE, the body which produces health standards, Uh, recently produced a set of draft standards on fetal alcohol syndrome, which provoked a strong response from women's organisations. Can you tell us a bit more about these guidelines?
3: Yes, absolutely. So the body, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence that you mentioned, um, their role um, in producing quality standards is to highlight an area of healthcare where there needs to be some improvement and there might be some disparities of care Um, across the board so their job is to sort of codify and set out a standard for all to follow and um, in 2019 as you mentioned they published um, a draft of their quality standards on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. This draft followed the publication of a similar Scottish guidance earlier in 2019 and that was published by the Scottish intercollegiate guidelines network sign Um, they published guidelines 156 which sort of marked the first uk guidance on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders so i'll shorten that to fasd and as a consequence sort of set out the standards for how to deal with alcohol in pregnancy which we've not really had in like a uk guidance before so essentially um The guidance went a bit further than I think anyone could anticipate, so rather than setting out a clear pathway for diagnostics, which is what they did, the the guidelines groups went a little bit further and decided to set a standard for antenatal care, um, which involved what women should expect during um during their visits and what information should be recorded and then subsequently transferred to their child's health record and so this was a huge expansion that we've not in the uk seen anything like it before um, and that's really where the center of the controversy lied it was it was to do with the idea that this information would now be recorded Regardless of whether um, the pregnant woman wanted it to be recorded or not. And it would be there in case her child later developed or showed some signs of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, and a diagnosis um, could then be made with that information.
0: So, so just to clarify on, on what information was, was being recorded, this was effectively any and all alcohol that had been consumed, even potentially before a woman knew she was pregnant
3: yes yes you're completely right so um what was really interesting about these guidelines is that it incorporated a precautionary message and um, that the uk does endorse so back in 2016 um the uk chief medical officers so across the whole uk um published their low risk alcohol guidelines which said you know we don't know At what point alcohol causes harm to a developing fetus. So we know that you know at high levels the causal relationship is clear, but with low to mid-levels, we don't know. So the safest approach to avoid all risk is to avoid all alcohol. And so that has been serving as a public health message since 2016. But what this clinical guidance did was incorporate a precautionary public health message into how we diagnose. And so on that basis as the guidance says it verbatim to make consistent with the uk cmo message of abstinence only there won't be a lower threshold below which alcohol cannot be used for diagnostic purposes Um, so it would be the celebratory glass of prosecco at a wedding or at a birthday you know it's any any amount of alcohol would then be recorded as an alcohol exposed pregnancy and at the moment we don't have that that clear root and that clear causal root between really low levels of alcohol and harm.
0: And what were the fears as well with this guidance these standards about how they might impact upon the relationship between women and healthcare professionals?
3: That's a really good question because in the whole process of the of, of publishing the draft quality standards, this wasn't touched upon in the equality impact assessment. So usually with these types of guidelines, you see consideration into what groups might be affected. And pregnant women and also healthcare are two groups that really their roles in this would dramatically change with the introduction of this guidance. So there are concerns, for example, that if if some pregnant women really struggle with alcohol dependency during pregnancy, if they know they're going to be questioned at every single appointment, not just at booking, but every time they see their midwife, if they know they're gonna be questioned and that information has to be recorded and then transferred for others to see, the question remains, will they engage with healthcare? And that's something that we don't have (laughs) <laughs> any empirical evidence yet to sort of see w- what that what that impact would be and um, so there's a there's a big concern that it would lead to disengagement with services out of fear of you know social services becoming involved children being removed there's also that fear that women won't be so they might not engage with healthcare or they might not disclose any behaviors um that they're worried about because of this culture of surveillance or they might not even have the you know the time in a very we know that midwives are are overstretched we know that there are a lot of time constraints with appointments so there is a concern that you know women and midwives won't have that freedom to to tailor their own appointments with their patients and really provide patient-centered care that is to be expected across all areas apart from pregnancy, it seems. So I think those were the the biggest concerns that you know it would change that dynamic. A dynamic of trust would maybe not be encouraged, and more um, approached with the level of scrutiny that you know I personally don't think is is good um, in that situation.
0: And ultimately, this compulsory recording of of alcohol consumption was dropped from from the standard, but. Do you think these these ideas, this, this approach has has gone away? I mean, you you, you mentioned in 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 Scotland this is still present in, in the guidelines. Yeah, so
3: ultimately um there was a lot of interest in this quality standard. So during the consultation process, NICE revealed that you know these guidelines attracted more comments than than any other guideline that they've put out and that in part has been due to the widespread media attention that it received and so um ultimately a range of bodies and organizations um like the the uk data guardian for example uh, the gmc the royal colleges everyone sort of banded together and said hey your proposals to to transfer this information number one they're illegal. <laughs> you know, you, that, that people don't lose their right to medical confidentiality and um, privacy just by virtue that this information could be useful in a, a small number of cases. So everyone did sort of band together, and, and ultimately Nice came out and said, you know, we we could not find an acceptable or appropriate way to action this. So it's been removed. However. As you, as you mentioned, it still exists in the Scottish guidance, which is due for review this year. So, you know, watch the space to see if a revision will happen there. But ultimately, we're seeing a number of um, quite problematic proposals float around the policy and research sphere. The biggest is um, the hunt for... An objective, and I say objective in quotation marks, an objective measure for alcohol consumption during pregnancy. So, using um, something called a biomarker, which is is essentially an indi- biological indicator of something. So, um, for example, blood or hair strands. They're biomarkers. So, so there seems to be a big policy and research push to find a biomarker which can tell us whether a pregnant woman has drunk during pregnancy.
0: Because a woman's word is
3: is not enough. Precisely. And so at the moment, the, the biomarker that holds the most promise is something called meconium, which for those that have had kids, they might know what it is, but um, for, for people that don't know, it is um, an infant's first faeces And essentially, it starts accumulating in second and third trimester of pregnancy. And it can be thought of as a direct reflection of maternal consumption um, during those second and third trimesters. So if someone has drunk alcohol or taken drugs or anything like that, it will show up in the meconium. So there's a lot of push to sort of develop research into, into how this biomarker can be used, both in terms of research and in terms of. You know clinical practice down the line um as a way to sort of undercut any type of self-reporting of alcohol use so i don't think these things are going away i think we're going to see a lot more what i would consider to be quite outrageous but a lot more extreme policies that really push that idea that we can't trust people to tell the truth because there is so much stigma attached
0: and Rachel, it's it's not just women in in pregnancy or or postnatally who uh, are being targeted in in these policies, is it? Um, I wanted to ask you about draft, also draft guidance from the uh, the World Health Organization in twenty twenty one, their global alcohol action plan, which also proved surprisingly controversial. Can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Yes, yes, I can. So. Um... Essentially, this um, action plan was announced to um, to implement the global strategy to reduce harmful use of alcohol um, as a public health priority. So looking at how to reduce morbidity and mortality due to alcohol consumption and um, there were five operational objectives um, as part of this this action plan. And within one of them, attention was being given to, you know, raising awareness of the dangers of alcohol and who, which target populations needed to receive that message. And um, as you said, the, the draft in June 2021 called for appropriate attention to be given to the prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age. So this was, as I said, under advocacy, awareness and commitment. And... Um, As you said, a lot of people took a lot of issue with this, you know, the the idea that women may fall pregnant, may not plan a pregnancy and then do considerable damage to their fetus. And so we need to be targeting those women who are not using reliable I say that in quotation marks because reliable contraception has its own meaning in, in sexual and reproductive health, but who are not using reliable methods such as um the coil or the implant because they might fall pregnant, they might have a drink, and they might cause damage to this um to this pregnancy. Um, so as you said, that a lot of people took issue with this sort of likening it to the Handmaid's Tale which we've been seeing a lot lately again this idea that women are vessels to carry babies and that that's all they're good for and and the idea that the World Health Organization would come out and target women of childbearing potential not intention just you know the the potential to, to reproduce because they're seen as a a vessel for carrying a baby was was outrageous um, for a lot of people. And after the pushback, uh, another draft was published in October and that clause was removed completely.
0: Following the backlash. But as you say, in terms of sort of the policy approach now, it does increasingly seem as though advice which is aimed and often with incredibly good intentions around protecting pregnancies isn't just directed at women who are pregnant but increasingly anyone with the capacity for pregnancy and it's it's almost as if if women are in a sort of constant state of being pre-pregnant if you like and yeah and I wondered what impact you thought this had on on women and and their lives Yeah,
3: I think you've got the the nail on the head with that, Claire, because, you know, we've seen since 2018 anyways, what I would regard since 2018 in the UK is a real policy effort towards recognising the preconception period. So in 2018, um, Public Health England published um, guidance on making the case for preconception care, which for those who haven't read it, sort of lay out all these risk factors that people mainly women although you know there is more of an effort recently to include men in this conversation but mainly women um the idea that there are all these risk factors and behaviors that need to be changed before you even think about starting um to plan for a family and so in this guidance you know they talk about a lot of things that are really beyond people's control so you know they talk about risk factors like adverse childhood experiences for example or you know not having secure housing and not living in poverty you know these really really big wider social determinants for health and linking those to the idea that you have poor preconception health and so you cannot think about starting a family until you fix this and so you know as you said the advice comes from a good place ultimately because ultimately people want healthy pregnancies and they want to do best by their pregnancies, but we have to be careful about how we communicate these things because a lot of the time, you know, if someone's living in poverty, you know, that's that's not good for them either. <laughs> and that, you know, that it, it works both ways and that we should be, you know, focusing on on people's lives, not just their potential to to have babies and their their potential pregnancies.
0: That's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel, today.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me. So we've certainly come a long way from the days when women were advised by their midwives to have a pint of Guinness during pregnancy.
0: Haven't we? It feels like a very different set of circumstances now. And I think the you know the thing we have to remember is that all these policies, this advice, is, is often issued with, with the best of intentions. You know, all of us working to support women... Uh, want to see, you know, healthy maternities, healthy babies. But I think it's also about recognising that sometimes this precautionary principle can have really negative consequences for, for women as well. But also this idea really that, you know, even before now women are pregnant, that increasingly it sort of feels like they're under surveillance. So it's it's clearly the case that, you know, the huge impact of Roe v. Wade is around access to abortion, but it's really important that we think about some of these other issues that may be at stake in terms of women's health care. I think what was really fascinating about these discussions and, and worrying as well is that it feels that women aren't just being given advice and told to come off medications, for example, because they're pregnant. But some of this advice is also stretching increasingly back into the pre-pregnant period. And that really can stretch back quite a long way before even a woman is even considering pregnancy.
1: Yes. I mean, when we talk about the pre-pregnant period, that could stretch from um, the moment a young girl has her first period right the way through to when a woman undergoes menopause. So, yes, absolutely, it's that's why it's so important that we're looking at this, this growing agenda in health care while also absolutely keeping our eye on the impact on abortion rights.
0: If you want to find out more or have been affected by issues raised in today's podcast, please visit our website, bpass-campaigns.org. Join us next time on Reproductive Conversations and get involved in discussion on social media by following at BPASS1968.